This morning we're going to talk about what the Bible teaches on the subject of baptism because in just a few weeks we are going to have an outdoor baptism along with barbecue, babdecue as we call it, and um, I'm hoping that maybe some of you will decide it's time to go on down to the river, as we say. I also want to make sure everybody understands and remembers why baptism is important and what it really means. So first, let me remind you that on Sunday, September 18th, we will reconvene at 5 p.m. at Abrams Park for a church-wide barbecue and baptism. Everybody has that down that is in any way related to this church, I hope. Please bring friends, bring family, and more importantly, bring yard games because we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to make some memories once again. Whatever you do, please do not miss out. It's a highlight of our year. Let me quickly say that I'm very aware that some of you have heard this sermon multiple times. Uh, please understand this is a message that needs to be shared every year. And every time I do, there are people who realize one of two things. Some realize they never have actually put their faith and trust in Christ uh, to save them from their sin in the first place. Um, others come to realize that they really ought to be baptized as a profession of their faith in Christ. Now, I have a big question today, one that I will repeat in this message. This is going to be one of those messages that people may ask friends and family members to, to watch or listen to online because I am going to say things that don't get said. You're like, what else is new, right? Uh, and we're, we're, we all know somebody who needs to hear these things. So here's the question for some who are here today and others who will listen later. When it comes to baptism, by immersion in water, which should come after your conversion to Christ, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Many people are very confused about baptism. In fact, I would say that generally, even most Christians don't really get baptism. Even some of you who think you get it might still need to tweak or two uh, you're under, tweak, have a tweak or two to your understanding of baptism. I know I personally needed to make some adjustments over the last few years, and, and that was after seminary and everything else. I, I have needed to uh, make some tweaks to my understanding of baptism as I've really dug into the Word and understood what the Bible actually teaches about baptism. Maybe we can all stand to think about this some more. Now, the only place um, to get authoritative information about baptism is through the Word of God. And we have a frozen up screen, but that's okay. We only get it from the Bible. And so I'm going to focus on several truths that wind up forming a solid summation of everything that the Bible has to say about baptism. I'm going to talk about what baptism is, what it isn't, and again I'll be asking, what are you waiting for? I want to start by stating clearly that in this church, we do not believe baptism by itself saves people from sin. Grace received through faith in Christ saves you, not baptism. So to be clear, simply being baptized in water will not wash away your sins or get you into heaven. I actually kind of like the song by Carrie Underwood, uh, but I'll just go ahead and tell you that there is not something in the water. <laughs> and there's nothing about baptism itself that causes a person to be saved from the consequences of sin. For the most part, churches of different stripes all agree that there must be faith in Christ for a person to be saved. We all agree that faith in Jesus is necessary. However, some do wrongly teach that faith is not enough. 
without other things like baptism tacked on. But let's, let's put the idea to rest that anyone out there believes that, that just dunking someone in water, you know, magically saves them from sin. Having said that, as you know, there are plenty of differing views on baptism, enough to split us into denominations. And because of these differing views, and since most people bounce around to different kinds of churches, they are often left with a hodgepodge of ideas, differing ideas, many of which are overreactions to others' ideas until, I'm afraid, the average church-going Christian today is totally confused about baptism. What I want to do is focus on clear truths from Scripture. In so doing, I hope to correct some misconceptions, and ultimately I sincerely hope that even a few people in this room will come to understand their own need to be baptized as soon as possible. That is my goal. I'm telling you ahead of time, there are people sitting in this room today who have not experienced biblical baptism. Some of you have never been baptized at all. Others have never been baptized in a biblical way. I'm hoping that this very day, some of you will make a decision to follow Jesus in biblical baptism. Before I go on, I want to clearly state, even one more more time, that salvation does not happen through the act of baptism. As was the case for the criminal on the cross, if you were to make a decision to trust in Christ as Savior and then to die before baptism could be performed, you would still go to heaven. But folks, what bothers me is that many in the church today, particularly the churches that I've kind of come from, want to cheer those kinds of statements as if we received gold stars for making sure to keep baptism in its relatively unimportant place. As if we were somehow charged with making sure everyone sees baptism as sort of optional. I think we've done a little too good at that. And quite ironically, I think Baptist-trained pastors like me, preachers like me, are often the worst. This message may challenge those of you who come from a Baptist background at certain points. If you come from a Catholic or Lutheran background, you will definitely be challenged. My guess is that some of this will be a bit challenging for almost everyone, which is generally what happens when we peel back the layers of what man has said about something to find out what God actually said about it. Fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to tackle this subject by making six truth statements based on Scripture. Half of these will be stated in the positive and half in the negative. Each statement is related to the previous one. We could actually put a therefore in between each of these statements because one flows into the next and is based on the previous. So here we go. Number one, baptism is your profession of faith. Baptism is your profession of faith. What does this mean? To profess your faith in Christ is to make your belief in him public. This is the purpose of baptism. Baptism is the outward sign of your inward decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ. As a wedding ring shows that you are married, so baptism shows that you are saved. Jesus said if we are ashamed of him before men, he will be ashamed of us before the Father. Paul says we are saved not only by believing in our hearts, folks, but also by confessing Jesus as Lord in front of other people. Romans 10, 9 through 10. The Bible is abundantly clear that there must be an outward expression of our personal decision to trust in Christ. Keeping it private is simply not an option for biblical salvation. If there's no willingness to make an outward profession of faith, we can know that there is no true inward belief either. Those who truly come to understand who Jesus is and who believe in what he has done for them on the cross 
and who put their faith and trust in him are compelled to make that decision known. True believers take their stand with Jesus. Have you done that? Listen, if you have been biblically baptized, you have. Are you hearing me? If you've been baptized biblically, you have publicly professed your faith, both in Christ and in his gospel. And that is extremely important. But where do I get the idea that baptism is the principal way we should first profess our faith in Christ? And let's be honest, many churches in the evangelical tradition teach or once taught that the profession of faith happens, some of you know, when you walk the aisle. That's when you make the profession of faith, right? Many testimonies back in the day even started with the words, when I came forward in church. And that's not necessarily wrong, but where does it leave baptism? Why does anyone talk about the day they publicly profess their faith in Christ through baptism? In truth, the altar call of which I speak was a tradition started by a Presbyterian minister named Charles Finney during the Second Great Awakening, which took place in the middle of the 19th century. For more than 1,800 years after Christ, there had never been such a thing as an altar call. And in fact, nothing of this nature is found in Scripture. I'm not saying the altar call was a bad thing. And indeed, it was a very good thing for many of us. It, it was good for me. It was a part of my childhood. A lot of good decisions were made through altar calls. Good for me. In many ways, I miss it. I do. And sometimes we do call people to this altar for prayer, as you know, if you've been here long. I'm not opposed to doing an altar call. And in fact, starting today, we're going to experiment with kind of a reverse altar call where we invite people to go to the back of the room in order to respond in some way to the message. We will do this during the final song after the sermon. At least one male and one female leader will be in the back of the room each week to receive people who need prayer or who want to share about a spiritual decision. We will start doing this today. Call it a backwards altar call, if you will. And to be honest, part of the reason for going to the back is so that you can actually hear each other and have more time to pray or talk, possibly even beyond the length of the final song, if it's needed. Back to the point, one of the reasons I do not do a traditional altar call or require people to come forward to make a profession of faith at the end of my messages is that in doing so for several decades, I think the point of baptism became somewhat diminished. Historically, when churches started equating walking the aisle with a public profession of faith, the purpose of baptism began to be misunderstood. Listen, the most biblical way to publicly profess your repentance and your commitment to Christ is through baptism. So, is there a verse of Scripture that explicitly says baptism is our profession of faith? Not explicitly, no. However, what we see demonstrated in Scripture time after time after time is baptism functioning as the profession of faith. After Jesus left this earth, every single person who was saved by faith was immediately baptized. I don't speak in absolutes all that, all that often. You know, only Sith do that. The dumbest line, one of the dumbest lines in the history of movies, only Sith speak in absolutes, which would mean you were a Sith 
when you said it, because <laughs> it's an absolute statement, right? Sorry for that. I don't speak in absolutes that often. Um, after Jesus left this earth, every single person who was saved by faith was immediately baptized. Not a single one of them walked down an aisle, but every last one of them was baptized right away. Get this, after the ascension of Christ, every single conversion recorded in the New Testament included an immediate baptism. In Scripture, baptism was absolutely, absolutely the way a person made public his or her faith decision to trust in Christ as Savior every single time. Let's look at the original evangelistic moment for the church. That is, when the first 3,000 people came to faith in Christ on the day of Pentecost, Peter had been preaching and he pointed out several Old Testament prophecies about the Christ to open the eyes of the people so they could see that they had missed him. The Messiah had come, but they had not believed in him. And as you will see, because of the resurrection, they were ready to change their minds. They were ready to repent of their unbelief and believe. In this scene, unbelievers become believers putting their trust in Christ. From Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 36, Peter continues his sermon, saying, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, a person could misunderstand this passage on the side of, saying that these people were saved through the act of baptism. A person could even misinterpret this to mean that it is literally through baptism that sins are forgiven. Just reading this alone without any other scripture or biblical context could lead one to such a conclusion. And as I've said already, that would be a mistake. However, a person could not interpret this to mean that baptism is unimportant or completely unrelated to salvation, could they? No, we must conclude rather that baptism is immediately, is intimately connected to the experience of being saved. If you need reiteration, go back and look at the scripture. It's there in your listening guide. Read the underlined words. What we actually see here, if we look carefully, is that baptism is a new believer's profession of faith. We see that people had gone from unbelief to belief in their hearts. They were pierced to the heart, it says. They had realized their error, were convicted of unbelief by the Holy Spirit. They were ready to repent. And repent of what? Of, of sin habits? No, not, not really. That's not what this is about. They were ready to repent of rejecting or ignoring Christ and failing to place their trust in Him as Savior. They were ready to repent of their unbelief. And see, to repent of unbelief is to truly believe. True faith is repentant faith, by the way. This is why sometimes the Bible says, repent and believe, and other times it simply says, believe. You cannot truly believe the gospel in an unrepentant way. 
So they were, in fact, each one making a decision to repent, to turn to Christ for salvation. And because of this new spark of faith from the heart, they said, what must we do? They said, what now, preacher? Almost in a panic, they said, how do we respond to what just happened in our hearts? Peter said, repent and be baptized. And you see, they went straight to the water that day. Baptism was the way they made public their inward decision to repent of unbelief and put their trust in Jesus. Instead, baptism functioned as their public profession of faith. And those who were not baptized were not considered to have been saved. See, baptism was so intimately connected to this moment of saving faith, to salvation, that this account and many others put baptism right there with salvation, almost as if they were two sides of the same coin. Let me give you another example from Acts 8.12. The Bible says, but when they believed, Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. When they believed, they were baptized. We see this throughout the scripture. When they believed, they were baptized. In other words, right after they believed, they were baptized. And that's the perfect, consistent, perfectly consistent pattern of scripture. Note that it was always after they believed. Never before, always after. And the fact that baptism came after belief, along with the fact that it was outward and visible, tells us that baptism functioned as a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Again, had someone refused baptism, I don't think there's a single one of the apostles who would have considered that person saved. Why? Because they were refusing to publicly profess their faith in Christ in the way he commanded for it to be done. People who were saved were baptized afterward, period. Now, I want to also point out that the nature of baptism is important when it comes to how it functions as a profession of faith. Because someone might ask, why the dunking in water? Why is it not enough to walk down an aisle or even to just stand up and say, I believe in Jesus? That's a profession of faith by itself, right? So why do we need the water? Also, why submersion? instead of sprinkling or pouring or something of that nature. To put it simple, simply, submersion in water represents the most important tenets of the gospel, that which we are actually believing about Jesus and ourselves. See, the water represents death and the grave, both Christ's and our own. Going into and coming out of the water represents our belief that Jesus went into and came out of the grave that he died and rose again to cleanse us from our sins. We are baptized to proclaim our belief in these truths, the gospel. Submersion and emergence from the water also symbolizes the fact that we are dead to our old life and alive in Christ, able now to walk in newness of life with him. This is what we are professing to believe, even through the act of baptism itself. As Paul put it in Romans 6, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into his death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It isn't difficult to see the intended imagery of baptism by immersion in those verses. But here's one other verse from Colossians. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You were buried with him in baptism 
and you were also raised up with him in baptism. Do you see the clear symbolism in this picture? And do you see why our profession of faith needs to involve submersion in water? We're not believing in just anything about Jesus, but his death, burial, and resurrection, which also speaks to who he is and what it all means for us. Not incidentally, the very word baptize in the Greek literally means to sink someone or something in water. The word simply does not mean to sprinkle or pour. When I'm baptized, I publicly profess that I believe in and have put my trust in what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, because he went under and came out, I can go under and come out. You catch that? Because Jesus went under and came out, I believe that in him, I can go under and come out too. Come out of what? Death. That's the gospel, folks. The good news. Through baptism, our profession of faith is also a proclamation of the story and the power of the gospel. I wonder if Jesus knew what he was doing when he said, I want you to submerge people in water and raise them up out of it as a public way to identify them as my disciples. Their sin is washed away. All things have become new. Now, having explained that baptism by submersion is a new believer's profession of faith, how important is it? How important is baptism? Is this thing called baptism perhaps more than just bonus material? What does it say if a person claims to have been saved in private but refuses to be baptized as a public profession of that faith? And so I'll ask again, what are you waiting for? Be the best day of your life. Now we covered a lot of things with that first statement and the rest are shorter. So let's move on to the second truth statement, which is this. Baptism is not optional. Because baptism is your public profession of faith in Christ and his gospel, it is also not optional. Let me simply point out that when you read the New Testament, you will not see new believers given the option to put off baptism for maybe later. Have you noticed this? You don't see someone being converted and then the messenger saying, no, what do you think about baptism? Never. There's no option given. We can read account after account, and every single time it's simply so-and-so believed and was baptized, period. Never do we read so-and-so believed but decided to think about baptism for a while. Never. Not once. Baptism was commanded by Christ right along with the idea of becoming his disciple. The truth is that there is simply no separation between salvation and baptism in the New Testament. Jesus himself said, who, who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. After reading those words of Christ, is there still a believer out there who feels like he should wait a while to be baptized? I don't think so. I don't think a true believer can read that direct quote from the Savior himself and still want to put off baptism. Jesus simply assumes that salvation and baptism are a package deal, not optional and closely connected. Let me read another verse, a couple verses that show the importance of baptism. The apostle Peter writes, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected. 
to him. Still think baptism is optional? I don't think so. And I could spend a bunch of time explaining why Peter did not mean that baptism by itself is literally what saves a person. He was using a simile corresponding to the flood, and baptism was the corresponding piece because of the water. But I'm not going to spend time telling you what he didn't mean because what most of us need to get from these verses is not a lower view of baptism, but a higher view of baptism. Listen, we stray from Scripture and put ourselves on shaky ground when we present baptism as if it were optional. I'm not saying you won't go to heaven without baptism, but I am saying based on Scripture that something crucial is missing if you have not been baptized as a public profession of your faith in Christ. So I ask again, what are you waiting for? Third truth. Baptism is your first step of discipleship. Discipleship is what happens after you are saved. Discipleship is the process of learning from Christ, being changed by Christ, and following or obeying Christ. And the primary concept I want to communicate here keys off the word first. Baptism is not step 12 of discipleship. Baptism is not something you will eventually get around to after you become more spiritually mature. Baptism is not something to put off until you get your life all straightened out. Hear me now. Baptism is the very first step necessary if you are serious about following Jesus. That's right. I think it is necessary to be baptized first if you really want to follow Jesus. Again, we know this simply by the example of every single account we can read in Scripture. Never once did someone become a believer and then wait until they got everything straight in their life to be baptized. I could give many examples, but here's one from Acts chapter 18. Luke records, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now, as leader of the synagogue, Crispus would have been a Jewish convert, but it also says... Many of the Corinthians were believing and being baptized. Okay, so what do we know about these Corinthians? They were Greeks, pagans, far from God. To be blunt, they were extremely immoral people. They were not God-fearing Jews who tried to follow the law of God and came to believe in Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah, like Crispus. They were Corinthians, and that was kind of like saying they were stereotypical Portlanders (laughs) in terms of their beliefs and behaviors, okay? Okay. The church at Corinth was Paul's most difficult church, partly because the Corinthians were known for extreme immorality. Some people think the Northwest is pretty rough. Morally speaking, the Northwest has nothing on Corinth, nothing at all. These people had no idea about right and wrong. They were sinning sinners who sinisterly sinned even on Sundays, okay? Now, here's what I want you to notice. Does it say that these morally bankrupt heathens were believing, correcting all the immorality in their lives, and then being baptized? No. It includes the baptizing right along with the believing, as does every single example in the entire Bible. Think about this. Does anyone ever get all the sin out of their lives on the day they decide to put their faith in Christ? Ever? Not. No. Never. Typically, people don't even get the so-called big sins Uh, out of their lives on day one. If they have an addiction, that addiction's not always broken that first day, is it? Something changes radically on the inside at the moment when we're saved, but outward life change is a process that happens over time. 
This has always been the case. And yet every single person we read about in Scripture was baptized on the same day that they believed. They weren't even given time to think about changes God would want to make. They didn't know what needed to change. They hadn't read the Bible. They didn't even own a Bible. They didn't yet know the commands of Christ. The fact is that for New Testament converts, the changes came after baptism, not before. Life change comes as a part of an ongoing discipleship process made possible by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. We can see very clearly in the letters to the churches that they did not have every sin out of their lives from day one. And yet, there's an interesting thing to notice about all of these uh, believing yet still messed up people in the churches. All of those people who still needed to be corrected morally had something in common with each other in every church. Every last one of them had already been baptized. Remember the Philippian jailer. We'll actually read that story in a few minutes, but just recall for a second that this idol-worshiping Roman soldier was, was saved and then baptized on the same night. You think he went home in between and threw out all his idols uh, on the way to the water before Paul and Silas baptized him? It was the middle of the night. What about his relationship with his wife? Was it even a, really a marriage in God's eyes? Was it a biblical marriage? Had there been a Judeo-Christian wedding? No, he was a Roman. They would have sacrificed animals to multiple gods at the wedding. That's what Romans did. But Paul didn't wait for any of that to be fixed before baptizing the Philippian jailer. Many would cringe if a pastor were to baptize such a person on the same day of his salvation today. I mean, think of a notorious sinner who everyone knows is a bad guy, and suddenly he comes to believe in Jesus through the ministry of our church, and let's say I baptize him that very day. You might be thinking, oh no, pastor, what if it doesn't stick? What if this man doesn't stop eating food sacrificed to idols? Or to bring it into our time, what if he keeps drinking too much? Or what if he has the wrong belief about abortion? Does that bring it Make it real enough? But what did Paul and Silas do when this sinful pagan Roman soldier put his trust in Christ? They went out and found water that very night and baptized him. That's the first thing they did. What about the Great Commission? Would it not make sense to consider the order of things? Jesus put his marching orders in step-by-step -step form. He said, go therefore and make disciples, make converts, help people become my followers of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. One, make disciples. Two, baptize them. Three, teach them to obey my commands. But we often try to put at least some of step three before step two, don't we? We're afraid of baptizing people until they've, until they've obeyed at least some of the commands, you know, Maybe the really important ones. But that's not what Jesus said, and that's not what we see in the New Testament. In case you don't really get what I'm saying, some churches would fire their pastor if he baptized a couple living together, but not yet married. Just so you know, I've done exactly that many times. I also told them their Savior would want them to get married or stop sleeping together as soon as possible. But it did not make their baptism contingent on anything other than their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Nor did the Apostle Paul or any other apostle or pastor in Scripture. The same goes for any other situation where a person is living in sin. You have an addiction, 
Don't even think about trying to break that addiction as a prerequisite to being baptized. If you've trusted in Christ, get baptized as soon as possible, then work on the addiction. Quick disclaimer, I'm not saying anyone should be baptized without at least understanding what they are signing up for. If you are baptized, you're making a commitment to follow Christ wherever he leads. You are repenting of sin, signing up for life change. God is going to change you. You will learn to obey his commands. In fact, if you do not, then the book of James and other scripture tells us that proves your faith was empty and useless, that you never really were saved. But while life change is proof of salvation, it's certainly not salvation itself. And most of your life change will come after baptism because baptism is always the first step of discipleship. Always has been. But what if we baptize someone on their profession of faith and later they prove that faith was not real because they never change or eventually they even turn away and deny Jesus? Well, in short, that is not something we can control or predict. Basically, we can't worry about that. Wait, what? That's right. Listen, if, if the apostles didn't worry about it, what am I trying to do? Seriously, if they didn't wait around to see if it was real before they baptized someone, why would I do that? Am I really going to pick certain sins and say you can't be baptized until you stop this or start that? Believe this or believe that other than the gospel? On what basis? Certainly not on any kind of biblical basis. Even in the early church, there were people who were baptized, but sadly turned out to be wolves among the sheep. Even false teachers and those who returned to idolatry, God actually struck some of those wolves dead just to make sure everyone knew they were not actually his. Consider this, who baptized Ananias and Sapphira? Most of you remember that story. They were part of the early church that got struck dead by God for their showing that they weren't his. It, it would have been one of the apostles that baptized them. Did he make a mistake? How do you think that pastor felt when God struck these two imposters dead? <laughs> How did the guy who baptized them feel? Well, I can tell you how he felt, because I have felt it. I've seen it bear out that a person I baptized was not truly saved far too many times. I baptized people who later denied Christ and professed atheism. So I can tell you, it feels terrible. Yes, it's incredibly sad, but the fear of this cannot stop us from baptizing every single person who claims to put his or her faith in Christ. Only God knows the heart. And he will handle any false situations or any apostasy now, just as he did then. As for me, just like the apostles, I baptize people upon their profession of faith in Jesus, period. Now let me tell you something else I've seen over the long haul of experience. You're like, you haven't been a pastor that long. 31 years. Just let me take off my glasses. You'll see how old I am. My eyes tell the story. But something I've learned. People who claim to be saved, but don't take the step, the first step of discipleship and baptism, go nowhere fast in their walk with Christ. One of the best ways to ensure stunted growth is to hold off on baptism. If you believe you've been saved already, but you haven't been baptized as a public profession of that salvation, you likely haven't grown very much in your walk with Jesus. I've seen it so many times. 
conversely, many times I've seen a strained Christian who never was biblically baptized have their life turned around by God at the point when they finally decided to step into the water. There are several in this room. Some of you haven't gone very far in your walk with Christ because you never took the first step after your conversion, baptism. That brings me to the fourth truth. Baptism is not disconnected from salvation. By now this should be obvious, but I wanna deal with this truth even more directly. Let's look at the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter eight. The Ethiopian had been reading scripture and Philip asked if he understood. The Ethiopian said, how can I without a teacher? Inviting Philip up to share with him. Picking it up in verse 35, Luke tells us, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now let me just stop and say, clearly as Philip was preaching, Jesus to him, he must have mentioned something about baptism. Hmm? Pretty obvious. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ, the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down to the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Again, we see how baptism is connected to saving faith, not disconnected. I mentioned earlier the story of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas had been thrown in the darkest hole in the prison, were in stocks, yet they were singing hymns of praise to God. The Bible says everyone was listening to them. And then there was this earthquake throwing open the gates. The jailer, thinking he would be tortured and killed by his superiors for, for letting the prisoners go, about to kill himself, Paul said, stop, don't do anything, we're here. Picking it up in verse 29. The Bible says, and he, the jailer, called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house, and he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. They all believed, they all were baptized. When the jailer asked how to be saved, they pointed him to faith in the Lord Jesus. But then, after he believed, they baptized him that very night. And the verses before this tell us it was after midnight at the time. After midnight, they found water. Wow, what does that tell us? Baptism's not disconnected from salvation. What are you waiting for? Number five, baptism is a powerful act of worship. Make no mistake, something powerful happens through baptism. Something spiritual happens, something heavenly. Jesus was baptized in order to set the example and God's voice thundered from heaven that he was pleased. To bring God pleasure in one sense is to worship him. Let's pick up the story of the baptism of Jesus from Matthew chapter three, starting with verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Don't miss the fact that the baptism of Jesus sparked a supernatural response from heaven. God could have made a statement like this about his son anytime but he chose to do this first at the occasion of his baptism. I don't think that's coincidence. I think baptism is a powerful act of worship. Baptism is pleasing to God. I think God responds to baptism, perhaps like nothing else. I believe when a new son or daughter of God is baptized, 
He wants that person to hear the same kind of voice in his or her heart, a voice that says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. We are the beloved. God is worshiped through baptism, and he responds by expressing his pleasure in the one being baptized. I am saying to you that I actually believe God responds in a supernatural way when a person is baptized in the name of Jesus. That takes me right into the last truth, number six. Baptism is not merely an ineffective symbol. Many of the pastors I've experienced, including when I was growing up, have gone to such great lengths to say that baptism does not save a person that I'm afraid they inadvertently downgraded the importance of baptism. You know, it's the whole spiel about how there's nothing magic in this water. And that whole thing about how everyone should remember that this is all just a symbol and all of that. And there's truth there. But you will notice I don't usually make that spiel when I baptize people. Somehow I just don't think that's what Peter or Paul or Jesus would be saying if they were here baptizing people today. I think it more likely that they would focus on the fact that this person being baptized is now a child of God and is never going to be the same. That we are witnessing a person who is moving from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They would not dilute the power of the moment and the incredible meaningfulness of baptism. Think back to John the Baptist, who was baptizing people before Jesus came on the scene. The Bible says his was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This forgiveness was not a complete forgiveness like what was coming through Christ. It was pointing forward to that. But the point is that even the baptism of John had some kind of spiritual power connected with it. Maybe that makes some of you nervous to say baptism had spiritual power. But the Bible indicates that some level of God's forgiveness was granted even with the baptism of John. That's spiritual power. Even the baptism of John was not merely an ineffective symbol. No, as I've said, it was the outward expression of an inward decision, even a manifestation of faith and grace at work. Later, Jesus asked some of his detractors a question. As recorded in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Implied is that Jesus considered the baptism of John to be from heaven. God used it to prepare people's hearts for his coming. If God used the baptism of John to prepare people's hearts for Jesus, does it not stand to reason that he would use baptism in the name of Christ for some spiritually effective purpose as well? I believe something powerful happens through baptism. I believe God responds. I believe something clicks that doesn't click otherwise. I believe baptism is the beginning of powerful life change in the person who's obedient enough to be baptized in front of the church. Folks, I do believe baptism has more than symbolic value. That there's some kind of intangible spiritual effect caused by God through baptism a spark of spiritual growth, perhaps, like the germination of a seed. Think about this for a minute. We would say as much about simply reading the Word of God, would we not? We would say that God does something through Bible study that is beyond the natural. We know it's not merely academic when we read the Bible in the Spirit. We would say there's spiritual growth through listening to biblical sermons. Growth that can't be explained merely as receiving information or gaining in knowledge. Should we not afford at least the same kind of spiritual power to baptism? 
Must we strip it down to an ineffective symbol? I don't think so. I think baptism is much more important than we have often made it out to be. I think that's the reason Jesus commanded us to do it. I believe baptism is intended to mark the beginning of the new life of the Christian. That God responds to this act of obedience by doing some kind of work to kickstart spiritual growth. I believe we are missing out on something spiritually until we are baptized. Baptism is not merely an ineffective symbol. So hear me now. What are you waiting for? I told you my goal in the beginning. I wanted some of you to see the need to be baptized. So is anyone ready to get on with it? Wish we had some water here. It's a little bit difficult. But we do have a plan. Use your connections card to let me know so I can talk to you briefly about this and hopefully we can get you signed up to be baptized on September 18th. Even better, when we sing our uh, final song in a moment, go to the back, talk to someone. I believe today is gonna be Pastor Bevan and, and my daughter Tori, who's been a missionary. They're gonna be back there. If we need more people, we'll find more people. Go back there and just, just let them know about a decision. Some kind of response helps us to follow through later. Now, when I sit down to talk to people, like let's just say that you say, yeah, I, I think I want to talk about being baptized. I'll just tell you ahead of time what that talk's going to look like a little bit. You know what the main point of that talk is, one-on-one -on -one with people who might want to be baptized? The main point is to make sure that they have already put their faith in Christ or to help them do so in that moment so that their baptism can be a true profession of that faith, so that their baptism can be an outward sign of an inward decision that's already been made in their heart. So many places in the Bible make it clear that you have to make a decision. That you have to have this moment where you put your trust in Him and receive His gift, the gift of what He did on the cross for you. The moment of your conversion. If you want to be baptized, you have to be saved first. If anyone wants to make sure you've been saved, that you've repented of unbelief and placed your trust in Christ, I'll give you an opportunity to do that right now. I'm not sure how much time we have left, so let's do it right now, okay? Would you pray with me? And if you're someone who isn't sure, and you get the baptism part, and now you're not absolutely sure that, you know, you get that step two is baptism, but you're not absolutely sure that you got step one, we can take care of it right now because God is ready to respond, and He is moving, and He speaks through His Word, and His Word has been presented. And if you're here today, you probably have already heard, and you know that, that God has died on the cross for your sin, that Jesus came, he paid the price, he rose again to show that he can come through on his promise of eternal life. You probably already know John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You probably have some head knowledge that it's through Christ that you will be saved. But have you ever come to him and said yes, have you ever had a moment of faith where you received his gift? The gift is from him. He's holding it out, but you've got to take it before it becomes yours. Would you just say yes to Jesus today? The Bible even says if we just call out in the name of Christ, we will be saved. It's not so complicated. It's just got to be real. Will you turn to him today? 
say, Jesus, I need you to save me. I'm a sinner. I have problems. And I need you. I need what you did on the cross to be applied to me. I need your blood to cover my sin. Just say, yes, please save me. Cry out to Jesus in your heart. God's word says if we do that, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's by faith in Christ that we're justified, not by doing good works or being good enough. If you put your faith in Christ today for the first time, you know from this message what comes next. Don't miss the important moment of putting your faith on display to the glory of God through baptism. God, thank you for working in this place today. I pray that people will make real decisions, that they'll respond quickly before they just have another time of not actually following through. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.